It's podcasting time. I am Jonathan Isaacson, and this is Just Another Jerk, Dispatches from Japan, the podcast. Subscribe to the podcast wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts, and rate the show. And if you've got a minute or two, give it a review. And of course, share it. Always, always, always share it with a friend. So we're going back to a history episode today, so this will be yet another uh, entry into the Everything You Never Wanted to Know About Japanese History series, and it is not a happy story, so sorry in advance for that. It is not, like, it's not gory or anything like that, it's not, you know, there's no, nothing like that, it's it's just depressing, maybe a little bit terrifying, um, Probably not terrible, just it's mostly depressing, but let's get into it. Up through the first part of the 20th century, the Japanese islands were not connected in any way, such, you know, any sort of land-based way. It's nothing that land-based vehicles could navigate. I mean, I guess if you had a hovercraft or, or a duck, you know, you know, one of those aquatic bus things that get used in touristy areas... Um, sure, I suppose you could have traveled between the islands that way, um, but all of that has changed, of course, since then. And it began to change in the 1920s, uh, when Shikoku and Honshu were connected, and then the early 40s, Kyushu and Honshu were connected by a rail tunnel, um, following that, it was a highway bridge between Kyushu and Honshu, but Hokkaido the further the, the, the big four, the, the northernmost of the big four islands, Hokkaido wasn't connected to Honshu until 1988 when the Seikan Tunnel opened up. And as it stands today, that is still the only way to get between Hokkaido and Honshu on a land-based transportation uh, a vehicle. Transportation vehicle? Vehicle. Whatever. There's still no way to drive your car from Honshu to Hokkaido. Um, there were apparently plans once upon a time to create a bridge at the narrowest point between the two islands. I'm not sure how far. they. I, maybe plans isn't the right word. Maybe ideas to connect them with a bridge. Um, nothing has come of that. And... A lot of it based on the remoteness of both ends of that hypothetical bridge. It seems really unlikely that that will ever happen. So the status quo of just a rail tunnel being the only way for, for uh, land-based transportation to travel between the two islands will likely hold in perpetuity. But yeah, that lack of land-based connectors between the islands meant that ferries were incredibly important, and still are, for a nation like Japan, which is all islands. Now, personally, I have been on ferries dozens of times. I mean, some of them are pretty short. Um, I guess the very shortest one I've been on is between um, Hiroshima and Itsuku, uh, and uh, Miyajima, the, 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 the island that has the big tori gates out in the in the water that's just like a very very short one but and i've only i was a long time ago i don't really remember it the one i do remember that i've been on a bunch of times a pretty short one 
is there's a short trip from Oma to Hakodate, and that's about 90 minutes. Um, and the longest one that I've been on um, was when my wife and I, we moved from Hokkaido down to the Tokyo area, you know, with a, with a car and all that. And that one, we went from Tomakomai, which is a big port city in Hokkaido, down to Oarai, which is a port down in the, the edge of the Kanto area. Um, and that that ferry took the better part of a day. I think it was like 19, maybe 20 hours, if I recall correctly. And that was a lot of fun. I mean, well, it was fun for me, at least, um, because my wife... She gets seasick pretty pretty badly, actually. Um, so she took some medicine, and between the medicine and her just not feeling well, she slept probably 15 or 16 of those hours on the, on, on the boat. So that just left me... Because, I mean, I slept the normal, you know, seven, eight hours for a normal night. So, But I had, you know, the rest of the time, I just wandered around the ship. You know, I talked to some people, uh, the one, a person I remember, there was a retired elementary school principal from Hokkaido, and he gave me some sake as we we're just sitting there and talking in, in kind of there like was sitting area on the boat. It was a big boat. Um, yeah. And the other ferry that I've been on, and I've been on this one a whole bunch of times, is the ferry between Aomori City and Hakodate. And it takes four hours, give or take. And that's not much different than the ferries, you know, running more or less the same route in the 1950s took. And that is when and where our story takes place. So starting in the 1920s, um, April of 1924 to be specific, the Shoho Maru began services as the first regular service Tetsudo Denraksen, which is literally train connecting ship it's a train ferry and this is one of those things that i was completely unaware of for most of well not for a lot of my life now i grew up in the middle of the u.s you know not exactly a lot of call for ferries in you know the midwest um the only ferry that i was kind of really personally aware of as a kid were those little rinky-dink ones that cross rivers in, you know, 10 minutes or whatever. And the one that, like, very specifically I I had experience with, there's this this little tiny ferry that goes across the Ohio River uh, at Cave in Rock in way far southern Illinois, and it goes across to the absolute middle of nowhere in Kentucky. Um... So yeah, definitely wasn't. Re- I wasn't really aware of train ferries. I mean, I, I suppose at some point I probably saw a picture, but it just wasn't something I had any thoughts about, to be honest. At any rate, starting in 1924, regular train ferry services began between Almori and Hakodate. Trains would roll into the hold of these rather large boats, obviously, and then the ferry would travel across the Tsugaru Strait. Um, the Tsugaru Strait, it's a body of water that is pretty well divided off 
from the Japan Sea and the Pacific Ocean by all the peninsulas of Aomori and Hakodate, uh, the Hakodate area. I mean, for real, I mean, just take a look at a map and look at the area between Hakodate and Aomori. Find it on a map. And the Tsugaru Strait, just look at all the peninsulas. It's a very peninsular area. Just, I think, let's see, one, two, three, four. There's like five or, depending on how you count it, five or six kind of peninsulas in different, sticking off in different directions. So the, the Tsugaru Strait, it's fairly well, you know, shielded off from the worst of like the, the, the high seas kind of waves and stuff. And so anyway, ferries, they would pick up a train from Aomori Station, go across the Tsugaru Strait, drop it off at Hakodate Station, and then do the whole thing in reverse. And if you look at the locations of the two stations and the memorial ships, because there are, so we have the, the Mashumaru in Hakodate and the, the Hakoda Maru in Aomori. And the location of the stations, the memorial ships, which were actually train ferries, it all makes so much more sense when you realize, you know, the stations and the ferry terminals needed to be basically the same thing. But so we've gotten to a little bit of a digression here. Let's get back to our main story. Well, we haven't really started our main story. Let's get into our main story. In 1947, a new ship began train ferry services across the Tsugaru Strait, and this ship was called the Toyamaru. She was new and up-to-date, outfitted with radar in 1950, and she was one of the first commercial ships in Japan so outfitted. Just real quick aside here, I find it really weird that ships get referred to with female pronouns, so I'm going to stop doing that. Um... It's a ship, right? It's an it. So sorry if there are any old sailors listening to this and you're taking offense. Sorry, whatever. I'm a landlubber. Just deal with it. I don't, I'm not going to call a ship a she, okay? It's a boat. Anyway, the Toyamaru was a new ship, and it could cover the distance between Hakodate and Aomori in four and a half hours. Like I said, not much different than the modern ferries that make the same trip today, some, you know, 70 years, whatever, later. And it was a pretty big boat. The official capacity was 1,128 passengers and a crew of 120, though oftentimes the boat would carry more than that. Uh, they would carry more people than their official capacity because, remember, Japan, late 1940s, 1950s, we're less than a decade out uh, from World War II. And Japan was really trying to, it was not a fully modern, you know, it, it was a developing nation at the time. Safety, it wasn't nearly as safety conscious as it is today. So they would often carry more than their 1,128 passengers. I don't think like 2,000, but like 1,200, 1,300, probably kind of in that general vicinity. So the ferry connecting Hakodate and Aomori was 
hugely important. As this was the primary connection between Honshu, which is the main Japanese island, and Hokkaido. Now, sure, there were other boats that connected the two islands from other ports, but the route between these two largish cities um, at the time, Hakodate had more than 2,000, uh, sorry, 240,000 people, and Aomori had more than 180,000 people. This was the main gateway into Hokkaido at the time. And the train ferry allowed trains to connect Tokyo with Sapporo and points even further north. So, yeah, it was a really important ferry route, and that is kind of a big deal. So, autumn is in Japan. Autumn is still very much typhoon season, as it is in, you know, most places in the northern hemisphere, right, that get hurricanes, cyclones, typhoons. Autumn is still part of the season. And in late September of 1954, a typhoon was passing over Japan. Now, the Japanese Meteorological Association numbers typhoons, and this was typhoon number 15. It was the 15th categorized storm of the season. And in other countries, it's called Typhoon Marie. So typhoon number 15, I'm, I'm going to go with the Japanese numbering because I live, I'm in Japan. I'm talking about Japan. We'll go with the Japanese system. So typhoon number 15 was an exceptionally fast moving storm. I don't think the winds were, I mean, they were strong. It's typhoon, but they weren't like, you know, it wasn't like a category one storm or anything. Or sorry, category five. Typhoons, yeah, typhoons, the higher the number, the stronger the storm, right? Whatever. It wasn't a strong, like the strongest category of storm by any stretch of the imagination. But it was moving really fast going north. So at 3 a.m. on September 20... Uh, what day was it? Oh, anyway. At 3 a.m. on the day, it is in Kagosh. It was over Kagoshima which is way down to the southwestern end of the country. Well, okay, if you leave out Okinawa, you know, it's at the far southwest corner end of the country. Okinawa is down there below that, but anyway. Point is, Kagoshima is a long, long way from Aomori and Hakodate. You know, it is something like 1,300 kilometers and over 1,400 kilometers from Hakodate. So almost 1,000 miles if you want to use the, you know, mileage. So it, it's a long, long way from Aomori and Hakodate at 3 a.m. You know, and so, yeah, really early in the morning, it's down in Kyushu, down at the far southwest. But this typhoon is moving north at a pretty incredible pace. So it's northerly movement. So the eye of the storm is moving north at something like 100 kilometers an hour, which is about that 60 miles an hour. And that is three times the speed of an average typhoon's forward movement. It's not entirely unheard of for a typhoon to move this fast, but it is rare. This is not, by any stretch of the imagination, a normal movement. It's, it's within the bounds of what's you know, has been seen, but it's just a little bit, it's a fast-moving typhoon. And this 
kind of was throwing off everyone's predictions about the behavior of the storm. Like, remember, this is 1954 weather prediction equipment. It's a bit more limited and primitive than what we have here in 2021. There was a lot more guesswork. So moving at over 100 kilometers an hour, this storm was moving up the Japan Sea. So the west side of, of Japan. And it gained a lot more energy and reached Tohoku, which is the region where Aomori is. It reached Tohoku in only 12 hours. Remember, it's that's like a, over well over a thousand kilometers, and it covers that in 12 hours. That's a fast-moving storm. And this is where all the talk of ferries comes into play. Now, the Toyamaru, which is the, the ship I talked about, the, the pretty modern new ship, it had arrived in Hakodate at 11 a.m. that same morning, before the storm had reached northern Japan, right? Remember, 3 a.m., it's way down in the southwest. It's moving fast, so by early afternoon, yes, things are getting into Hokkaido, but we're still in late morning. The storm had reached, right, by 11, the, the storm was still out over the... Uh, out over the Sea of Japan, kind of in southern Hoka, uh, Tohoku. So the uh, say the Toyomaru it arrives in Hakodate, arrived in Hakodate 11 a.m. and everyone on the boat, you know, including everyone riding on the trains, got off in, in Hakodate with no issues, no, no problems. Everything was normal. The weather was beginning to turn a little bit nasty, a little rough. I mean, there's a typhoon coming. What do you expect? The Toyamaru was scheduled to push off again, heading back to Aomori at 2.40 in the afternoon. There was also another uh, ferry scheduled to make the trip, but that boat wasn't quite as new, wasn't as advanced, wasn't as technologically advanced as the Toyamaru. So there was a decision made to transfer the number 11 Seikan Maru, that's that's the boat's name, it's a, Japan has weird names for boats, just deal with it. The number 11 Seikan Maru, they decided to take all the passengers from that boat and have them go to the Toyomaru and have the Toyomaru make the trip through the storm. I know it sounds kind of crazy, it's a typhoon, but it's not that strange really. I mean, boats travel through rough weather all the time. And, you know, often being out in open waters is the safest place. It's, it's safer for a boat to be out there during rough weather, right? There's nothing, there's less things for them to run into. As long as water doesn't get into the boat, yeah, I mean, you, you might get a little seasick, but otherwise, probably fine. And the Toyomaru was seemingly one of the best boats in the area, right? They had made passages in rough weather before. So they were scheduled to set sail at 2.40, but that time was delayed, right? The transfer of passengers from the Seikan Maru, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't pushed back a lot, but by, it was pushed back enough. So that by 3.10, which is, you know, just, just half an hour after the scheduled departure time, Right, they were they were just about ready to go, but the captain of the Toyomaru decided that the weather was getting too rough, and he canceled the trip. You know, and that made sense to me, right? Sure, if you can get out into open waters, 
before you know you hit the brunt of the storm, you can often ride out a storm, even if it's you know you'll be a bit choppy, but it's pretty safe. If you can't get out into open waters, right? If your boat is, you know, in the harbor but not at the dock anymore, you got boats, you got breakwaters, you got shallows, you got rocks. You know, the weather's getting bad. I mean, that's just a recipe for disaster. And that is a little thing called foreshadowing. So like I said, 3.10 in the afternoon, the captain says, nah, we ain't going today. You know, but after some heavy rainfall by about 5 p.m., the weather started to look better. Right, the winds were only blowing at about 10 meters per second. So that's apparently, I, I did the calculations, that's about 22 miles an hour or 19 knots if you're, you know, if you want the nautical terms. You know, it's pretty, that, that's a strong wind if you're inland. But if you're on the coast, I mean, that's pretty common. It's not, it's, it's a strong wind, but nothing to really, you know, to write home about. However, once they got out past the breakwater, right, the winds were twice as strong, you know, 20 meters a second, which, okay, that's, that's pretty strong, but probably not bad enough to cause a major problem for a big boat like the Toyomaru. And the captain thought that the storm had passed and the weather would continue to improve, especially as they headed south, the opposite direction as the storm was moving. Right, storms racing north. We start going south. The weather's going to get better. You know, makes sense if you think about it. If the storm had kept its up, kept up its pace. Right, remember it's traveling 100 kilometers an hour. So you know, two hours after the weather got bad, I mean, sure, it might make some logical sense that the worst would be over. But 5 p.m. after all, not but. But by 5 p.m., the weather in Almorty was turning okay, actually. It was was probably a bit blustery, but nothing that would have prevented a large modern ship from making the journey. I mean, and also, this this was happening in northern Japan. Generally speaking, by the time a typhoon gets to Almorty, Hokkaido, the typhoon is usually pretty weak, right? And... Most of the time, they're not even typhoons anymore, like they're tropical storms, maybe depressions. They're just the remnants of a typhoon. Nothing really big and strong usually makes it up to Hokkaido. Unfortunately, typhoon number 15 apparently didn't read the manual for normal typhoon behavior, or at least the manual of what humans in 1954 thought was normal behavior for a typhoon. So, despite having moved along at a good clip, you know, 100 kilometers an hour for 12 hours, it was here off the coast of Tohoku, moving up the coast, you know, towards the coast of Hokkaido. This is where the typhoon decided to slow down its forward progress. Now it was moving much more normal typhoon speeds. And as I briefly mentioned, the typhoon as it was over the Sea of Japan the storm was picking up more power. However, the captain, they didn't realize this. 
So the Toyamaru left Hakodate Harbor at 6.39 p.m., with the captain thinking that the worst of the storm had likely passed. And he had enough time, he figured, to get out into open waters, even if things got a little bit choppy again. And after all, this guy, the captain, he was, and I'm going to read a quote here from, there was, so I found this really good write-up of the accident. It's, it's a translation of the Japanese. Um, so I'm going to, this is about the captain. The captain was, and I quote, an expert and knew all about weather. People even called him the weather chart. He probably studied information from the radio, pressure gauges, and nearby wind conditions, and judged from his experience that the typhoon has passed and the weather will significantly calm down. Right? This guy knows his weather. Unfortunately, in this case, the captain was dead wrong. The storm hadn't passed by yet. It was just a lull in the storm that made, and it was probably made to seem even more of a, a lull by the conditions in Hakodate Harbor, which is a pretty well-protected harbor. As I said, right, it's got, of course, your normal ocean harbor breakwaters. As I said, it's kind of, it's also kind of got peninsulas around it that kind of make it a little bit more protected than even just going, you know, a few kilometers down the coast. So, Unfortunately, by the time the boat got out past the breakwater, they ran into 40 meter per second winds, which is nearly 80 knots, right? And the waves were what you would expect with that strong of a wind. They had been building in the, in the Japan Sea. And while much of the trip between Aomori and Hakodate is relatively protected, from the truly open waters of the Japan Sea and the Pacific Ocean, the approach coming in and out of Hakodate, right? So Hakodate Harbor itself is well protected, but once you get out of the harbor, it's one that is one of the few spots in the, the trip between Hakodate and Aomori that is not well protected from the elements of the Pacific and the Sea of Japan. The wind and the waves coming in from the Sea of Japan in particular have a, a completely unimpeded path for a stretch. And this was exactly the path where the typhoon-related wind and waves were coming from on this day. As the captain realized that he had misjudged the situation, he knew that there was going to be no sailing that night. But the boat was already out of Hakodate Harbor, out of the dock. But they were not far enough out into open waters, so the captain opted to do what was considered common practice at the time, best practice at the time. At about 7 p.m., he ordered the ship to drop anchor and turn into the wind and drive the screws forward at a fairly low speed, but just enough to keep in place, basically. Basically, you're putting your boat on a treadmill, kind of is what you're essentially doing. You know, this generally worked in adverse weather conditions, and it allowed boats to ride out a storm in shallow waters without drifting into other boats, hazards, you know, sandbars, rocks that you might ground on that might be nearby. But on this night, that is not what happened. The winds were so strong and the waves were too large 
the anchor just couldn't find purchase in the seabed. The Toyomaru had tried to drop anchor, you know, where the harbor sea was plenty deep enough for a boat to ride out a normal storm. But by this point, the winds were gusting at upwards of 57 meters a second, which is like 110 knots. The boat was being pushed closer and closer to the shore at Nanaehama, which is Nanaehama is a beach area in a town called, at the time, Kamiiso, which was neighboring to Hakodate. To make matters worse, water began entering into some really important parts of the boat. You know, the boiler rooms. So, um, yeah. So to get trains, even cars, onto a ferry, if it's a roll-on, roll-off ferry, uh, as you know, most vehicular ferries are, you got to have some, at least one really big door. And on this night, the waves, uh, they, they were just slamming into the Toyomaru. And some of them were slamming right into that giant door. And some of the water was getting into the depths, the bowels of the ship. And that's where the boiler room was. And that meant that it was only a matter of time before the engines lost all power. And so now the Toyomaru, which was already kind of... Fighting because the, the the fighting the the waves because the anchor couldn't grab onto anything, it was now completely powerless, unable to even fight against the waves that were just plowing into them, and the boat ran aground. Now I should say that one source I was looking at said the captain intended to ground the ship on the beach at Nanaihama to prevent it from sinking, but. The more detailed report that I found, the one I mentioned earlier that I quoted from, it makes no mention of that. Um, I don't think it really matters too much. Um, the weather was pushing the, the boat towards the beat, the beach, and it was going to happen one way or another. It was going to ground at some point. At 10.26, an SOS call was made from the boat. It was obvious that the ship was already you know, it was, it had almost assuredly was going to capsize. They had no power. They had grounded on some rocks just 700 meters off the coast. And the wind and the waves were still just battering the boat. In less than 20 minutes, the ship with over 1,300 people, many of them still below deck, some of them, it seems, still aboard the train, which had now broken free of its fast fastenings, rolled over its side and the seawater just flooded in in a torrent. The exact number of people who died is somewhat murky. As I said earlier, there were probably some people who... who it's not exactly sure. Some people probably got onto the boat at the last minute. The two like very definite numbers I saw... Uh, one of them said 1,159 people died. Another said 1,172. I mean, those two aren't far off. Another, another number said more than 1,200. I think it's safe to say that more than 1,100 people died that night on the Toyomaru. Less than a kilometer offshore. Drowned just in, in sight of land. Only 150 people survived. 
Now, the storm, it was not just the Toyomata. It was a very deadly storm. Another four boats sank that night. What I, was reading, I don't think any of those boats were ferries, um, but another 300 crew members were lost on those other four ships. I think, I think they're freight ships. Right, another ferry that was caught in the storm, it did manage to get out into open waters and it safely rode the storm out, further out. Right, it, it got it far enough out that it was safe from land. I'm sure it was a very sea-sickening time for everyone on board. I'm sure it was a very choppy ride that night. I mean, on land, the storm also wreaked a lot of havoc. Uh, it caused a, a major fire. There was a, a town in Hokkaido called Iwanai, and there was a big fire that same night caused by the storm that killed 35 and injured hundreds more. So this wasn't just a case of one captain making a bad, ill-advised decision that led to a lot of preventable deaths. Yes, in hindsight, it's easy to say that he made a mistake. But based on all the information available at the time, I think it's safe to say most captains would have made the same decisions. I mean, after all, this is the guy. This was Captain Weatherchart. People called him a weather chart. He knew his stuff. He was apparently a good captain. He just had very... They just ran into a, a, a unique storm. A storm that was out of their realm of what they were thinking. Now, of course, an inquest was launched to look into the Toyomaru disaster. And I don't think that anyone was like held like liable... Again, I think all the decisions made, they were the best practices at the time. Like, they were the things that almost any captain would have done. However, I think this bit from that very detailed write-up I found is worth quoting. It's, here, let me just read it. Since the captain of the ferry boat died, the committee collected information from the second mate, highest in rank among the surviving crew. He said, we were scheduled to depart at 2.50 p.m., but we delayed the departure due to the rough waves. At about 5.30, the weather got better. There was a storm warning, but we did not get any damage from Typhoon Number 12, so we did not expect the weather to get that bad. We departed at 6.40, and immediately after departure, we encountered winds of 32 meters per second. When we went out into the Gulf, the weather was terrible, so we headed back. We put the anchor down outside the breakwater, but we could not fix the anchor. We ran the engine at full speed against the wind, but both engines stopped at around 10 o'clock. The ship was beaten by the rough waves and hit rocks at 10.26. The ship turned over about 7 to 8 minutes after that. Passengers with life jackets immediately jumped into the sea. Our estimate of the typhoon's behavior was wrong. Our estimate of the typhoon's behavior was wrong. A bit of an understatement, I think. The disaster did lead to a lot of changes. Passengers weren't allowed to stay in their trains anymore during ferry passages. And more people were now involved in the final decision about even leaving port. Right? It wasn't just the captain making the decision. Observers on land were also involved in the decision. The method of dropping anchor that was used, right, that I mentioned, like that they tried to do, 
that apparently was used less as it was now obvious that if a boat was already out of the dock, it really was better to try to get out into open water. Right? Doors for trains on these ferries were better waterproofed. Coal boilers were also eliminated and replaced with diesel, which I guess I guess diesel engines are less likely to shut down in you know in, in a situation like this. I, I'm not sure, but that's something that they said was a big a big deal. At least what I was reading. I'm not an expert on that issue, so that's my guess. But perhaps the biggest change. The disaster really pushed the idea of the Seikon Tunnel. In 1955, the year following the Toyomaru disaster, the Japan National Railways, JNR, they, they operate, the, the railways operate a lot of these ferries because, I mean, they're train ferries, so that makes sense. So JNR expedited a train feasibility study. The study had been started in 1946, but was really kind of just moving along very slowly. But the, the, the say JNR pushes for a tunnel between Honshu and Hokkaido. And it took a while. I mean, at nearly 54 kilometers, the Seikan Tunnel, it's only one of the longest tunnels in the world, but the Seikan Tunnel finally opened in 1988. And the day the Seikan Tunnel opened, allowing trains to travel between Hokkaido and, and Honshu through a tunnel, that was also the very last day of the train ferry services. After nearly 80 years of train ferry service, more than 60 of regularly scheduled train ferry services, the only remaining train ferry boats in Japan would be displays. The Hakoda Maru in Aomori, the Mashumaru in Hakodate that I mentioned earlier. You can see those boats today. You can go on them. You can see they're, they're, uh, they're newer boats than the Toyomaru, but they're the same. They're the descendants of the Toyomaru. And today, if you drive along the coast of Nanaehama, there is a monument to the victims of the disaster. It's a very simple monument, but it's very well tended. It's surrounded by a small area, well-maintained grass with flower beds. At the site, there's also a little placard with arrows pointing in the directions of all five boats that sank that day, along with the distances to the site. And you can see the Toyomaru, seven-tenths of a kilometer. It also points at the two ends of the most visible legacy of the disaster, the entrances to the Seikan Tunnel. It points to the Hokkaido entrance and the Honshu entrance. And that is where we'll leave it for today. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever it is that you cast your pods. This podcast is, of course, available on most major platforms, right? Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, um, Amazon, probably some other places. If it's not on your favorite platform, let me know. I'll look into getting on that platform as well. You can find the Twitter at, uh, at JustAnotherCast. You can send an email to justanotherjerkpodcast at gmail.com. And you can find all of this information on the website, tinyurl.com slash jerkpod. That's tinyurl.com slash jerkpod. And that's all for me. I'm Jonathan Isaacson, and I'm out. Peace.